The quarterly labor force survey from Stats SA has shown that the unemployment rate fell by one percentage point to 32.9% in the third quarter. Now, this is down from 33.9% in the second quarter. They say that this is the lowest jobless rate since the first quarter of 2021, as the number of unemployed persons declined by 269,000 to 7.7 million people and the employment rose by 204,000 to 15.8 million people. To break this down a little bit more for us and, and what this actually means for young people, we're joined by youth policy expert and director at Rivonia Circle, Ms. Tessa Dooms. Tessa, so good to be talking to you again. It's been a while. Good evening, Tommy. It has been a while. Um, very good to be talking to you as well. And, and it seems like once again... The, the rhetoric just doesn't quite change, does it? Um, over and over and over again, it's issues of unemployment, of joblessness, and how this affects the youth. But before we get into that, let me pose Oprah's question to you. His statement was that business must do better than this, he says. Why are they not employing more people? That it is not the job of government. That government, he believes, has set an enabling environment for business to be able to function. What would be your response to to Oprah's statement? You know, um, we're often told that it's also not business's job to make sure that people are employed because businesses are there to make profit. And that leads us to a broader conversation about the logics of our economy and the logics of the economics that we've allowed ourselves to be a part of. Because if the the role of businesses in this country, if business sees its role as only making profit, then businesses are just using the country for their own ends. And that that leads to a conversation um, as well about unpatriotic capital and unpatriotic business. Businesses that see themselves not having a developmental role in the country. They only see the country as something that they can extract from rather than something that they'll give to, and something they'll give to at a bare minimum. And in some ways, we've created the conditions for this as a society and as a government where we are over-incentivizing business. Please, you know, here's a tax incentive, here's a tax break, here's a BE score. Um, Please employ people. Rather than challenging businesses to take a more developmental approach where they recognize that the more people are employed, the more people can buy. The more people can buy, the more people can participate and, and even be patrons of the very businesses. But we need a different logic that sees business as developmental and then they'll start employing more people rather than only maximizing profits. Is it not perhaps some sort of a, a, a contractual agreement between a government and business that we create an environment where you business can flourish? Yes, we'll give you the incentives that you need, but in return, you ensure that you do create jobs and that you do actually develop the economy. You see, we, we haven't gotten to a point where we have a government that has um, that kind of relationship with business, a relationship that expects from business um, you know, very clear things. So we, we're now increasingly having conversations about deregulating the private sector. People are saying you must deregulate, and that's the only way you're going to get jobs. But in fact, deregulation could lead to not only less jobs, it could lead to even lower pay, which doesn't really... So a job with that, that doesn't allow you, you know, the ability to actually feed yourself is no good, which is why governments exist. 
they exist to create a contract with society, including with business, that says if you're going to do business here, these are the minimum standards you need to reach to make sure the people who are in this country and are, uh, are patrons of and working in your establishments get a good deal from what you deliver. Until we have a government that's strong enough to do that and not a government that is saying, you know, please, please and thank you for being here. We, we want you here at any cost. We're going to continue these cycles of businesses that don't see their role as developmental and only do what's in their interest rather than in the interest of the country. I think, Tessa, you've given us um, a really clear and concise overarching theme which may have influenced and which may be influencing the very high unemployment rate. What do you believe are perhaps some of the specifics behind behind this um, high unemployment rate and, and what can and should be done about it? I think we need to reassess what we think growth is in the country, economic growth, and that growth isn't just how much money is circulating or, you know, um, how the GDP increases or decreases. But growth needs to be how many people are afforded opportunities to build their skills and develop themselves and to start participating in the economy on their own terms. So we, when we look at what caused the 1% raise in employment statistics for the school, it was the manufacturing sector, the construction sector, and the transport sector. Of those three, they're all very highly privatized sectors, and only one of them has some level of informality in it, which is the, the tra- transport sector. But we're still relying on big business and, and formalization, high levels of formalization and high levels of skill for where our, our jobs need to come from. And economy, opening it up to where um, lesser skilled and unskilled work can start, can, can start to move where we have informal economies that start to be nurtured and nourished and given space to flourish. And we, people need to know that if, they, if there's no job in the formal economy for them, they can start to compete with their skills and they can start to go into society and trade their skills, trade their abilities, and there's a, there's a framework that allows for that. Until the economy is more open for people to start to grow themselves and grow their skills and grow their participation, we're going to continue this cycle where we are at the behest of big capital for jobs to come. Are you, Tessa, saying that there needs to be a move from the employment mentality and, and employment focus to perhaps one that is more self-reliant, that looks at capacitating individuals to be their own business, to start their own businesses, and to be self-generators of, of, their, own, uh, of their own income and livelihood? I don't think it's a binary. So I don't think it's just entrepreneurship or um, employment in big formal corporations. I think we need to become a lot more innovative about what economic participation looks like. So we haven't had a conversation, of, for instance, about cooperatives in this country in, in a real substantive way for years. How can we create community cooperatives where people can um, do things like invest with each other, where people can do saving schemes and that, that can help them become income generating um, in a passive way, for example? Uh, if you look at East Africa, East Africa has a number of different kinds of economic collaborative models where people are able to earn and work and create um, wealth in ways that are not just about jobs, but also the ability to just create spaces where people don't have to um, always do the same thing in order to get um, an income. 
or we start looking even at um, different kinds of parts of our economy. For example, the care economy. Um, you know, how many people are out there doing social work, doing community work that never get paid? There's an army of community workers who, if we valued correctly and we gave the right kind of space, um, we could actually get jobs out of there. Um, we've got a creative um, economy, a creative sector, where we have people with talents and abilities that are going untapped and unused because we're just not thinking creatively. And so I'm not just saying it's entrepreneurship or formal economy jobs. I'm saying that there's a need to rethink and be innovative about the spaces we create for people's economic activity. When we look at these numbers uh, that came out today, about 3.5 million, uh, which equates to 34.5%, out of 10.2 million young people aged between 15 to 24 are not in education, they're not in any sort of training, they're not in any sort of employment. What is the impact of this? So the impact of that is, is massive. Um, and there are a few psychosocial impacts and then there are a few kind of material impacts in terms of the way the, the country unfolds. At the psychosocial level, young people's level of desperation is high and their level of hope is low. We are dealing with a mental health crisis amongst young people who feel dejected and who feel that they are on the margins of the society and there's no path for them. Um, just, just yesterday I was speaking to a mother who was telling me about a 16-year-old who committed suicide, who attempted to commit suicide and how that introduced her to a world of parents who are with young people who have tried to commit suicide, who are really at the edge because they don't believe this country holds a future for them. We are also dealing um, in mass with young people who are just checking out. So the number of discouraged um, job seekers is not counted in the 33% that the government is telling us unemployment is at or 32% it's at right now. We have hundreds and thousands of young people who are completely discouraged work seekers who have given up on the system. And that's very bad for morale of the country. It, it, it adds into the issues about violence. It adds into issues of crime and insecurity. But at a material level, what it means is that young people are now getting to the point of desperation um, in terms of their material conditions. So a young man said to me a few months ago, how does this government expect me to find a job when I'm homeless, mm-hmm. when I don't have the ability to pay my rent every month, but I'm supposed to turn up at a job interview, where I can't feed myself, but I'm supposed to turn up at a job interview? That's where it's leading us, where you have a generation of young people leaving their parental homes with nowhere to go, no leg to stand on, no place to start from, and we expect them to turn up at job interviews in suits and ties, ready to speak their best English. It's not going to work. Young people's poverty levels are going to start to really, really drop, and we're going to see them just fade out of the system, and we're going to have a lost generation if we do not start now. And you know, and you talk about a lost generation, it looks like a lost two generations, because if you look at this, it's those aged between 15 to 24 um, and those aged between 25 to, to, to 34 uh, that recorded the highest unemployment rates for the 15 to 24 years. That's, a, that's sitting at 59%, Tessa. Correct. That's 59.6%. And, and, and these are young people who literally will not have a chance because that's the age where you really need to be entering the job market. That's when you are doing your internships. That's when you're getting the skills that are going to capacitate you and form the foundation 
for your future if that future is anything that's going to be sizable. So if you're not even getting entry level, then what does the future look like for you? And even from the 25 to the 34s, there's 44.5%. So literally, there's a good 10 years of your life between, or a good 20 years from 15 mm-hmm. to, to 34, a good 20 years where you could end up actually unemployed, not in any sort of education, and literally wandering in a wasteland of, of nothingness and, and forlorn dreams for many, many young South Africans. And we must remember that during that same span of life, that 20 years, many of those young people who are not finding jobs, who are 28, 29, 30, have not had a, a proper opportunity to be gainfully employed or sustainably employed, are now having children. They are now having families of their own. And now those cycles of poverty start to just amplify. Their parents are getting older, can't work anymore. So now they have dependence as children and they have dependence in terms of their parents. We are, we are sending young people into traps, poverty traps, death traps, and, and chaos in their own lives. And people might say, well, you know, 15, talking about 15-year-olds as workers, we must remember two things about the education system. Number one is that um, a child only needs to be in school in, by law until the age of about 15. Thereafter, they are able to work. So people, a lot of young people are, lose, um, are lost out of the system, lose out at that point because they're not doing very well at school or they are caught in poverty traps where their parents want them to begin to work or they start to get diverted by things like gangsterism and drugs and alcohol. And at that point, you will lose a lot of people. Only 50% of any cohort of grade ones actually ends up in matric. So we already have to fix that problem. And one of the ways that we can fix it is actually at that point of grade, 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 eight, um, grade 8 and grade 9, where we should be creating multiple pathways for young people. Some who stay the academic course to matric, some who get um, rooted into vocational training, some who get taken into um, psychosocial support and care if they are vulnerable. But we need to start being more intentional about what we do with young people at a younger age and not just wait for them to pass matric or not before we care. The ruling party is going to conference in in a few weeks. How critical is it for them to be discussing this at the conference? And what are the type of discussions that actually need to be had in order to ensure that it's not just rhetoric? You spoke about intentionality. I have no hope that the ruling party is going to discuss this at the conference this year. Um, my sense about this conference is that they're going to spend at least two days talking about credentials, and then they're going to be fighting over uh, um, contestation, and then they're going to, on the, at the last minute, have a closing ceremony. I have, no in, I have no inclination that they're going to meaningfully discuss this. The ANC's had their policy conference, and their policy conference has not brought to the fore a conversation in society that moves this forward. Um, the, the president is is hailed and glorified for the YES program and and the initiatives that he's doing in the presidential desk. But he's taken a desk and made um, youth employment a project management desk in his office rather than a cross-cutting function of his entire economic work streams. Um, The the Department of Labor, the Department of DTI, and multiple departments in, in, in his cabinet should be dealing with this. But instead, he's made the project management desk in his office, and we're getting these narrow wins, very small, and no systemic solutions.
Where are then the solutions going to be coming from, Tessa? The solutions are going to have to come from us as a society pulling together in a One is we're going to have to hold our government to higher levels of accountability because we cannot leave government out of out of any solution that goes forward because our rands and cents sit within the state. But we're going to have to push government in the direction of um, a number of short-term and long-term interventions. So there are discussions happening within civil society around a basic income grant. And like I said, for a young person who's looking for a job but is homeless and can't eat, a basic income grant can give them a short-term solution that helps them get back into the labor market. We must have conversations about job guarantees where we our EPP programs and our CPWP programs that are already there and make them into more substantive work um, experiences to give people, again, access to social um, wage. But then again, we must rethink our entire economic system. So we must have a conversation in this country about informal economies and the ways in which we are going to nurture the informal sector. We must have conversations about the education and not just education in the formal sector sense, but ongoing learning and skills opportunities throughout life so those needs can be, can be caught somewhere. But we're going to have to generate those conversations from outside government and then put pressure inside government for those changes to take place. Tessa Dooms, thank you so much once again for your insight uh, this evening regarding uh, this very important, very troubling, central issue of joblessness in uh, South Africa, specifically amongst the youth. That's Tessa thank you Dooms. Thank you. Awesome having you this evening. She is a youth policy expert and director at the Rivonia Circle. You are still welcome to send us your voice notes on perhaps some solutions for the unemployment rate that we are seeing and the debilitating number of young people who are not in any sort of employment, they're not in any sort of school and no prospect. I mean, we calculated a good 20 years. There's a possibility that from the ages of 15 to 34 that young people in South Africa could have never ever even entered the job market even with their qualifications that they may have had. And obviously that puts you on the back foot as far as economic freedom, as far as being a contributor to the economy, as far as being even a breadwinner for your own country, uh, I mean, for your own family. Tessa there spoke about a lot of the young people starting families, starting families as unemployed, and then finding yourself in the circle of being a beneficiary of welfare. And almost half of the population in South Africa receives at least one social grant. And, and that's a huge, huge, huge welfare net. It amounts to 243 billion rand, or 4% of the GDP is spent on social grants. That is child support, pensions, etc. And, and I'm just wondering, and as much as these social grants are very much needed and necessary because they support a large number of a population who otherwise would not be able to support themselves. Could they also, on the other end of the stick, be the reason why some South Africans will not hold government accountable? Because you're saying, at least I'm getting something. At least this government is giving me something. And if you don't support the government and you don't hold them to any sort of accountability, that you could even lose that. I mean, those are just some of the sentiments that... um, that, that have been bantered around. What are your thoughts on this? And I guess the viability of such logic and the viability of, of such thinking. The voice note number is 60 That's 60 
7303. It's 13 minutes after 8 o'clock on Metro FM Talk. I'm Tamin Gubeni.